Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So easy one to start. Who are you? Oh. Hi, uh, my name is Cram and I am from the band Spiderbait where I play the drums and sing. <laughs> I'm always interested, Cram, in how people answer that question because I would say I haven't done the stats on it, but I imagine at least 80% of the time, people identify themselves immediately by what it is that they do. You know, I am Cram, I am from Spiderbait, I play the drums in Spiderbait. Like that was, when I asked you who you were, you immediately described yourself as being like, you know, what you do. Is that, do you consider who you are to be what you do? Well, this is a very interesting question, my dear friend. And that is, if you and I ran into each other, which we did, you know, a little while ago, um, outside of the interview construct, I wouldn't introduce myself that way at all. It's I think that it you we we do exist in a lot of ways with in um, all these different aspects of our life where we have maybe different versions of ourselves or different images that we portray. And if you're being interviewed, like if if I was even being interviewed for a cram project, I wouldn't probably say anything about spider at all. It's like this is a this the premise of this interview is I guess whatever you want or whatever we want, but it's also because I'm doing a series of stuff on the the anniversary of the release of Ivy and the Big Apple, so it's a spider bait thing. So today I'm Cram from Spider Bait, which I'm very happy to be. But I think in in relation to the question, to summarise, I think we as human beings can be whoever we want to be, wherever we want to be, whenever. That's, I, Bob Dylan used to do that. He used to make up stories about who he was and where he came from. I do that stuff all the time. <laughs> you don't know this, but I'm going to tell you, my takeaway coffee name is John. <laughs> so, because it's one of the reasons is like my son's going, what? why do you call yourself John for coffee? And I'm like, well, it's just so it's easy. It's one of those easy names like John or Steve or Jack. No one, no one gets weird if it gets called out. And um, it's worked really well for me in the past because um, if you say Cram, it's like, is it Graham? Is it Cam? Or is that that guy from Spider-Man? So I don't know. It's um, You can call me John if you want. So I, I love this. Like, because the idea of being different people, you know, we, we, I think in society we expect this consistency from people that somebody, you know, this person who is one thing when they are on stage or in the public mm. eye or doing what it is that they do for a living, you know, professional sport, any of those sort of things, that, that somehow you are that person with that characteristics at all other stages of your life. So, like, yeah. is Cram from Spider Bait, like, is that like a fun thing to put on now? Like, is it more these days a very separate part of your life? I imagine when you're younger, all those things are all tied up together. Like cram from spider bait is just also cram, right? Like, you know, yeah. Yeah. whereas like, I think when you get older and you have different priorities and, you know, you're performing and your music only becomes one aspect of, you know, who yeah. you are. Does it, yeah. is there a sense of like, you get to be, cram from spider bait? Oh, this is fun. I'm going on a little holiday. I'm going to be cram from spider bait again. <laughs> Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think I'm getting better at it, at mm. being Grand from Spider Bait. And I I certainly have no reservations or um, or reluctance to be. I think in the old days when you first burst on the scene, I've done a lot of interviews today about, you know, this whole thing, how it all exploded. And it was very difficult to sort of um, uh, 
you know, in, I mean, I'm sure it's the same for you when you sort of people first start recognizing you and know who you are and what you're doing from whatever. It's difficult to sort of navigate. I'm so much better at that that stuff now because I can compartmentalize my myself. I think also since I moved away from Melbourne and live up here in Byron, it's really it's it's a good place to be if you want to be partying you can, but if you want to just chill by yourself, you can. So I think the answer to your question is yes. Um, I'm more than happy to be all these different people. I think in a in a sense even more so as I actually need to be those different people in order to be them at the best I can. I, I mean, it can't, you can't be um, a rock star 24 seven and survive. It's like, you can't replace that high that you get from on stage or performing. I mean, dude, nobody knows that better than people in comedy. You know, it's the ultimate, I saw that documentary about um, Robin Williams and just, just how so many and the history of comedy, another doco, just how difficult it is to, to keep a sense of normality when what you do so well is insane and crazy and wonderful. So it's like, only the, there's not many Willy Wonkers of the world, but it's great to be that sometimes. So I, I sort of, I don't consciously do it and nothing is fake. I'm actually all those people all the time. It's just a question of when and where. Which bits of the personality that you dial up. So talk to me about the idea of looking back on like an anniversary, you know, looking back on something that, like if you went back 20 years to yourself, is there a piece of advice that you would love to give that young man starting out? I, I mean, there's a few pieces, but I'm not sure if he would take it because he yeah. was just so, <laughs> you know, this is the classic, this is the classic thing of young, there's no, no one more full of themselves than an early 20s um, <laughs> white middle-class rock star from a from an affluent country like they're just it's just like you my god i i rule i'm the greatest <laughs> i am the greatest and and that's that's not a person who, who takes advice mm. so in a sense i would actually say that it's a part of it's a, a requirement of that journey in a sense to go through that stuff get some things right get some things wrong and just hope that you get to the other side there's a there's a, a dear friend of mine who's a um, like famous Australian actor, she is like a legend, and we have this pact together that we and it's basically she came up with it, and it is long game, and that's basically the idea of if you're an artist or in anything in life, I guess, but particularly someone who's in the in the arts, which is all about performing and people getting to know who you are and recognized and da da da. Um, you, you try to look at your body of work as the whole the whole level of your life and when you get to the end then be judged on what you what you have done and judge yourself in that way rather than the really big highs that you have and the really big lows because it's all you know you just got to hang around and keep loving creating the work and that's um that's a perspective that i have now that i don't think i could have imagined back then so i guess it's a long it's a long podcast but it's a long answer is that the advice would be uh, important and the advice would be from the heart but the advice would be utterly pointless because you wouldn't listen <laughs> so when does that young man you know and I understand that or at least have some insight into what that would be like you know yeah. and when does that young man start to you know realize that 
they've got to take some sort of different responsibilities for their life or, you know, change their connection with why it is that they do something or like you, when did you start to feel like, cause at, at the start was there one consistent feeling, Hey, this is working. This is exciting. We're playing live music. We're touring all over the place. We're, you know, partying. We're having, we're meeting famous bands. Like, yeah, what a great life. Everything that you could have possibly dreamed of. Yeah. When, yeah. when is the point where it goes from like that into, you have to think more deeply about it. Maybe as it being your life and your career or something yeah. that, you know, th those sort of things. When does that start to formulate in your mind? Um, I think it's basically one word and that is kids mm. um, um, for me anyway. And I was as like a lot of men are very reluctant to have them, even though I was very much in love with my partner. Um, I basically had to be really dragged kicking and screaming like I, we were, we were, you know, I, I, we were just about to move to LA. It was all this stuff happening over there. Um, and it was a crazy time as well, but realistically it was just that thing. And, and I've had this, I know a few mates have gone through the same thing. And it's just this, this, that is the point where you make that decision, which way do you want to go? And it's not no disrespect to anyone who may be in this, in a, this situation I'm about to talk about, but it's not that fun being an older person without kids unless you're really into it. You know, it's like there's a certain sadness that, that can happen because you're just you're still trying to do the things you do with doing in your 20s and you, do, you can't do those in your 40s and 50s. I mean, maybe you can and if you can, go for it. That's awesome. I'm not one of those people of prejudice against non-parents. But it, for me personally, it just gave me a sense of, um, well, do I love this woman? And I, I said, yes. Do I want to stay in this relationship? I'm like, yes. And, well, let's go for it. And as soon as Lonnie was born, it just all twisted. I remember that moment when he first looked at me at the, in, the, in the hospital in Carlton and it just all changed. Now, the change that happened, though, is not one of like, oh, my God, I've got to be responsible now. It wasn't that at all. Like, I'm as irresponsible as ever. You know, that, that's one of the reasons <laughs> I think I'm still good at what I do because I don't really give a fuck, you know. Um, really, like, I don't I don't like musicians who just get boring. It's like, fuck, man, this is, this is rock and roll. You know, look what I just bought one of these, man. You know, I mean, come on. <laughs> it's a VC Rich and it's, I'm writing this new Spider-Man record. And I do, I do actually think that that sense of the, I'm not saying be an arsehole or a dick. I'm just mm -hmm. mean that you just stay loose and you, it keeps you young. It keeps you vital. And then when you perform on stage, you look down and you've got some older fans and then there's like kids watching you as well. And everyone, you know, I, I think it's the same with actors. I think it's the same with comedy. I think it's the same with all artists, all performers. It's a joyous, youthful aspect that you can do your whole life, you know, like, and I, I don't see any reason why I won't continue to be a musician for the rest of my life because it's what I love to do, you know. So, um, but all of a sudden, I've got this beautiful boy and it was joyous. It was, and the realisation is like, oh, you can actually do both, you know. Mm -hmm. I just got a text message from a mate of mine who's in a huge band who just had a, had his, just had a baby and had the same thing. Like I think one of the reasons we feel this way is it, it is the male arrogance and especially the young man who's a star and all this stuff and wanting to get the best out of yourself. I think I think your 20s is one of the most, um, what's the word, um, you're at your most um, aspirational 
you really and you have high expectations of what you're going to achieve which is not when you get to you know your 40s you don't look back and think of 20s you think oh they're children yeah. they're not fucking children <laughs> like come on it's so insulting to call people in their 20s children because they're not they're adults and now where i believe these days the whole socioeconomic situation in the world and particularly australia is even more split the, the need to get ahead is even more important now than if we go back again, like you and I, your, yours and our parents, they could just work and put their kids through school and go on holidays and get a, buy a house and they were happy. That's not the case anymore. So there's a, I think sadly there's a real desperation now to be successful, which is affecting people's, um, people's life in, I, I don't think in such a good way. Yeah. Okay. So, so much to unpack there. Like, I mean, sorry, I'm not. I'm not very good at answering one question. Oh no, no, no. This is great. This is exactly why this podcast. You identified it. Normally, I, people have a long answer and then they apologize, and I tell them it's a long podcast. You already understood that. You were like, it's a long podcast. I've got a long answer. There'll be a bunch of things that he can unpack. This is perfect. You're yeah. a perfect guest for this show. It's all good. So, you know, thanks. Um, the okay. So you didn't want to be a dad, or at least you like weren't actively pursuing being a dad what what was it about it that you thought wasn't for you was it about how it would inconvenience your life or did you think that you as a person had aspects of you that would not make a good father no it it was actually neither of those things i was just like i did want to be a dad just not right right i just i know what i just you know i just keep putting it off you know it's like that, you know, it's like having something in the in the shed that you just keep forgetting to, oh, we'll just, we'll just do it later. Just shut the door. You know, we'll get around to it. And um, that was, that was, you know, me. But I always was keen because I, could, you know, especially once I fell in love, I think, I don't think I was really that into it un- until I fell in love with Ree. And then I, um, that was the revelation because I, I say to everyone I know who's thinking about kids, it is, it's great if you're in love, but if it's, if you're not, it can be not as good because the, the, the having children should be the embodiment of the love affair. You know, it should be like that's, and that makes you a great parent. And, um, you know, I guess we were lucky in that way. So I wasn't reluctant. I was just slack. And you talked about the idea of, uh, you know, it not suddenly turning into a responsible person. And I love, I say this, I love, this is one of these things that I think, people have a real fear of is that somehow once you are a parent you have to like pretend you are a parent you have to you act like other parents act like so you believe yeah. in the idea that it is more important for you to still be intrinsically who you are as a parent and just adjust that to your like parenting style is that what i'm getting um yeah basically um i i sort of got the impression that it was like it was a surprise because I I was almost expecting it in a way to, to be that way, but I never really thought it would affect me as much as it did. So um, I was really pleasantly surprised that it had this incredible effect of a joyous effect on me, you know, and um, uh, it still, it still feels like that. The, the thing that happens though, is you just get less time to do stuff. Like, I mean, I mean the early days of, your parenting are very much um, like, oh, this is easy. We're just carrying a bag yeah. around. Going, <laughs> you know, you know, 
you know. It's not until they get a bit older that it actually starts to mean something. That's why those first-year parents, like oh, North Carlton was filled yeah. with them. Everyone's just walking around with their brand-new Ferrari friends, so goddamn pleased with themselves, so smug, and they're, oh, look at this gorgeous woman I've got. You know, she's still having sex with me. It's fantastic. You know, I'm king of the world again. Um, and it's only a few years later when they, they get older that it starts to become more complicated. But it's, um, yeah, it's beautiful, you know. Do you have a parenting philosophy? Like is there some sort of, like, you know, philosophy of parenting that you follow? Whether, like, I mean, I, it doesn't have to be a formal one, but is there some sort of parenting attitude that you have or at least you bring to the parenting partnership, do you think? I, I've tried to be pretty light about things, but I, I do get really... I can get flustered about something like if you drop a fork mm. on the floor or something, something mean, sort of small things like, ah, but really big, really big things like, you know, you've got inoperable cancer. Mm. Like, yeah, fine, no worries, you'll be great, you know. Um, I, I, I just tend to go with the flow and just be – my grandfather was very always cracking jokes, um, maybe sort of take a leaf out of his book a bit, and also the feeling that um, – I don't know. Um, the question remains is actually do I even think about it? I don't really. I just sort of go with and, if, you know, you've got these cool kids and it's fun and all that, but it, it's, um, you know, I still get to go away and stay in five-star hotels and drink champagne and play <laughs> the people. So it's, you know, okay, see ya. Woo, it's great. Come back. You know, I'm not like a normal dad whereas, you know, you're there all the time. But lately I have been, so that's been cool. So how old are your kids now? So my son is 11 yeah. and my daughter is – how old is she now? No, no sorry, my son is 14 yeah. and my daughter's 11. Yeah. Okay, all right. A great dad, don't even <laughs> – no, you said you had a light approach. You've just, that's yeah. a good example. So, but they're yeah. at an age where they understand at least to a certain extent what dad does for a living. Are they, do they think it's cool? Uh, yeah, they love it. Yeah. I mean, my, my daughter wears the Spider-Bat t-shirt to school almost every day at, a, at the Steiner school she goes to. So with that, that's a total trip. And I'm just like, we're doing, so the so Ivy this um, is released, re-released this month, which is really great. But um, early next year, we're going to be doing this. Um, we've got this, we've done this double album, which is um, the full retrospective collection of all of Janet's stuff, all of Janet's songs in Spider-Bat. And something I've wanted to do for ages. So I, I kind of was the real motor behind this. She's like, oh, I don't want to do that. I'm like, come on, come on. It's really good. And now everyone's really loving it. And um, had this idea of the one of the songs we we were gonna, are going to release as a single. We've got this unreleased song that we discovered of hers, which is really cool. And I just, I just, I was listening to it um, skateboarding one day, and I'm like, "This is great." And then I just saw my daughter just like skateboarding with a Spiderbat T-shirt. I'm like, "That's got to be the clip." This, this girl's skating, you know. Um, so it's yeah, it's pretty cool, like you know. But I know she, it'll eventually when she gets further, gets older, it'll be in the trash can, and she'll be like, "I'm not wearing that anymore." <laughs> Those guys suck, you know. Skating the bad seeds and shit. So, what was your childhood? like like do you have like really fond memories of being a kid like were you a happy kid the town i lived in was so small and um it, it was like the whole world you know it was a real strange feeling about that i mean um i met wit he used to be um live around the corner from me and um <laughs> he was um he played cricket with me in the finley dragons 
when we were like 13. So he would come around on Saturday morning and we'd go to cricket. Um, the world was a lot smaller back then. You know, you'd watch Countdown every Sunday. You'd be really excited about what was on, you know, Top of the Pops. You'd dream of having your own band and stuff, you know. And him and I started writing songs really young and that's where our old man Sam was written in our backyard, which is kind of our first hit song, I guess. But I always remember things like going down to the swimming pool and wearing like hot pink T-shirts with really, really big <laughs> mirror glasses and and like and football was everything. Like we were all really good footy players and the whole where I come from is a real football heartland. And there's so many, it was all about AFL, everything. All I wanted to do was play for Carlton. And, and um, I can remember, you know, in high school and I was really into my drumming and music by then and the, the coach of the Finley footy team, the, the firsts, came around and asked me, oh, so we want you to play this year for the seniors. This is the ultimate, you know, boy's dream. And I just had to say, no, I, I've, I've got my HSC I, and I, I really don't want to get injured. I've got to do this drumming. And it was a pretty big decision at the time. And I was like, oh, and they were like, what? Oh, gee, oh, no. And, they, you know, they're cool now about it. But I really it was one of those moments where I had to make a decision, I guess, about what I wanted to do. And I'm, I thought I was onto something here. And then I ended up doing the HSC and I ended up getting first in the state in music in, in New South Wales, which was a real trip. Um, for a kid with no real proper training from a, from a pretty small um, town and, a, and, a, and a, in a small high school that was competing against like these huge schools in Sydney and stuff. That gave me a lot, of, a lot of confidence because prior to that, when I was really young, I was actually quite timid and, and quiet and, you know, lost my dad when I was young and my mum raised me and my brother um, and my grandparents just lived up up the, the back lane. My pa would turn up with, like, chicken bones to give the dog and stuff, <laughs> which I now know are terrible. I've taken my own dog. I was like, what were you doing that for? You know, he, maybe chicken bones were better back then. I don't know. Um, but it was very much a small-town existence, and it was it was really joyous in a way looking back. I remember, like, it's, it, it's the, you know, it's the 80s, so, you know, I was really good at Space Invaders, so I would, like, take on all comers, you know, just stupid stuff. I can remember when the Chalk Burger came out, you know, I remember when Pac-Man <laughs> came out, just just stupid small stuff, you know. it's like It was basically like an Australian version of John Hughes films in a way. Um, and I don't know if you feel this way, but where you grow up definitely has an effect on how you are for the rest of your life. And it's weird being in a band that is essentially all from this particular one's tiny town. And we can remember things and have all these in jokes that are not funny to anyone else at all, you know? Um, but to us are just hilarious, you know? And if someone just has to say one word and everyone just cracks up and I realize now it's actually been a, a, a great, um, great help to us uh, in keeping us really aligned and together because we sort of feel like we're, we're kind of from another planet in a way. And we, we felt like that when we came to Melbourne and, and moved into the band scene and the punk scene, we were, we were definitely not Fitzroy. We were lived in Fitzroy. We weren't from that Fitzroy high school or any of that cool, you know, Melbourne inner city stuff. We're sort of country hicks. And there's something in a way now that, I, that makes me feel really proud of. So I, I, I still feel very sentimental when I go home to, to my town and um, it's great. It's not, it's nice to be from somewhere that's just a bit, 
off the beaten track, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think it shaped me very much so. I mean, the place I'm from is like 250 people, and oh shit, know, where did you come from? So, That's amazing. Uh, East Gippsland, country Victoria. So oh wow, yeah, my parents are dairy farmers. So like, oh, I grew dear. up like, and the nearest big town was Hayfield, which was 1,200 people. You know, like it's. Like when wow. when I'm in these inner city, you know, ABC comedy writing rooms, you know, where everyone grew yeah. up in the inner west of Sydney and stuff or, you know, oh. in the inner north of Melbourne and they're talking about their life experience. I'm like, we did really grow up in very different places in very different worlds. But um, wow. so I, I get that. But I must it must be interesting then. Because my experience was a bit being this country kid and I went to Melbourne, like literally lived in North Carlton, you know, lived in Fitzroy, you know, that they were where yeah. the places that I lived, the, the people that I hang, hung out with, the, you know, the people in bands yeah, and music too. and radio and I whatever. I probably saw you. Yeah. I'm sure we would have yeah. been at parties together, no doubt, yeah. you know, like, yeah. so, you know, some party out the back of Kit Warhurst's place or something like that <laughs> would have been, you know, <laughs> like Alex Paps would have been in the bath. Yeah. It was like old yeah. school, you know, it was good times. And, but I was always a country kid, like play acting a little bit of what like, you know, a city kid in that scene might feel like. How, mm. how, how did you, like, I mean, this being these country kids, you know, like, was there a sense of we don't quite fit in here or were you accepted by the scene and it was only you guys who thought we feel a little bit different? Like what, what was that feeling like at the time? I actually thought it was all right because there was a lot of other, mm. there was actually a lot of other kids like us. Yeah. There was a lot of other people from Kyabram or Ocean Grove or wherever, Yarrawea. I mean, there was a lot, because we were all hanging around Melbourne Uni. That's where I, that's where I came mm. down to go to Melbourne Uni. And it's, you know, Heaps of students there were from the country. So it was a real sense of like um, a lot of people coming down and discovering. Like I remember the first time I had hummus, I was like, oh, my God, what's this? It's incredible. Oh, Turkish bread. I was like, I couldn't believe it. You know, this is yeah. what it's like living in a small town. You don't, we don't have anything like that. And like it's very, very Anglo-Saxon. It's very, you know, you just sort of like, so maybe you're sort of starting your childhood in a way, in a way over again, but better. And then all of a sudden you get <clears throat> all this freedom and I don't know, in some ways it, it kind of made you fresh and, and not jaded in a way. You hadn't been like, you know, smoking pot and listening to the bad seeds since you were 10 years old. You know, you were, you were discovering it later and maybe in a way that you were a bit older and a bit better at coping with, with what, was, what was to come. But I just remember, I mean, I remember at uni going, I'm not sure if you remember the pub Melba's, um, but it was on um, Rathdown Street and the cops used to run this pub and it was years before there were any late night venues. This was the only place in, Mel in Melbourne you'd go after hours to drink so the cops would leave it open for students. And this is where the Australian Doors show started, so that the, the first of the tribute bands in Australia which they became famous for. So we remember at first year uni, we'd go down there and it was just, oh, it's great. You could, you know, smoke inside. You could, you know, the pots were really cheap. Everything was so cheap back then and watch a band and oh, it was just joyous. The, the first years of uni for me were really exciting and that's also when I met a lot of musicians and went to see, you know, I was playing a lot of jazz back then and just like this overwhelming, um, incredible, um, onslaught of music and art like I just I remember seeing Not Drowning Waving that, at that time too and I went to see Miles Davis and 
just weird things that you just you don't get to see in the country. But it's not just that you don't get to see them. You don't get to be surrounded by people that look a certain way or have a certain element. And that's what I do love about the city. You know, as much as I, I mean, I live in a small place now in Byron, but Byron's not really a typical country town. But I'm not sure if you feel the same way, you know, if you've moved to an even smaller place. But um, if you grow up in a country town, you love it, but it doesn't necessarily mean you want to end up living there Um you know, later in life, but then it's funny that you kind of, sometimes you do. So, you know, maybe your, your perception of your past changes as you go along. Yeah, no, no, I, I definitely embrace the idea of going, oh, no, I liked living in the country, just not that specific <laughs> part of the country. No, exactly. <laughs> I would like yeah. to have that sort of lifestyle up, up near with somewhere I can still get like a decent restaurant meal. <laughs> exactly. I agree. Yeah. So you want the bangers and mash again? Yeah, exactly. And it's also like, to be fair, um, it's also the politics and the feeling yeah. like I'm, I'm just writing a song at the moment that has this, that basically starts with this. Um, I so remember I was with Wit years ago and just someone we're at the, I think we we're at the pub or the golf club in Finley. And it was that period where you, where you, you go away to uni and then there's always this expectation that you've got to be something at the end of it. And whatever that be something means, it usually means you've got to make lots of money and be really successful. It's sort of, I've always had difficulties with uh, that element of society where um, your worth as a person is basically completely monetary. You know, you could, you could be a billionaire selling dildos and you get great, great respect. If you discover, if you're this incredibly gifted and amazing artist who isn't necessarily that successful you're not given that much respect by by others and um i always found that that country towns had this feeling sometimes that they you know people were a little bit unsure about you know whether to if something was was worthy of praise or not but i i think as time goes on sort of understand where that's where that's coming from um it's just that I think people like, you know, you and I are both artists, we're sort of like we're drawn to other places and I think it sort of comes pretty early in the piece. It doesn't mean you hate your town, but it's more that you just can't relate to what's going on or even more importantly, they can't relate to where you're coming from sometimes. So you go out into the world, you know, you see yeah. so many different places in the world, you know, and part of what you know, clearly enthuses you as a person is this idea that I have this life, but I also love the idea that I can go out and play shows and make music and, you know, explore. Yeah. So then the last year and a half happens, the last two years happens. What was that like on you? Like when, when your capacity to be out in front of audiences, to be moving around freely suddenly is just taken away mm. through no choice of your own. Like, were you, okay with that did you really miss you know that outlet in your life like what was your o overwhelming feeling of the last you know 18 months um i was actually okay with it like i mean there's a number of things i'm i'm pretty much an optimist anyway um i think my optimism is i, I have a saying um that nothing can breach my impenetrable wall of optimism and that's essentially my philosophy even though it's not really true i'm actually pretty i'm quite a nasty cynic and when i'm venting i'm just bagging <laughs> shit out all the time but I would, i've i've learned to be more compassionate in times you know uh at times and just sort of just try to take each situation and just find the best in it you know obviously we 
you know, we had some really big headline festivals cancelled. We were doing this big one with Skeggs. We had another one. We were, even last week we were supposed to be headlining the the Caloundra Music Festival this weekend, but we couldn't because, you know, the guys were in lockdown. Um, but, and you know, considering what, how so many people have struggled through this in the arts and everyone who works in the industry have just, like, lost their livelihoods, you know, compared to that, I've been fine. So, like, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones being, I guess, a successful musician. Um, and living in a place which up in Byron here where you can just, you know, I just spent days wandering along the beach. I'd write tunes. I'd chill out with my family, which I'd, you know, I'd, I hadn't not travelled that much in years. And um, I really sort of loved it in a, in a strange way. So I, get, I think I've got a bit of... Um, lockdown guilt because I actually had a really good time <laughs> and then I feel bad about so I know I can say it to you because we're mates but you know it's like it's one of those things that, why am I enjoying this and I started reading a lot I read a lot of I, it's like I don't read social media I have no social media the band does which is good it's great you can sort of pretend you're on social mm -hmm. media but you're actually not like I don't have any interest Someone says, why don't you do social media? You'd be so good. You're such a great talker and you get all that stuff. And I do a bit. And says, because I don't like people following me. It's mm. creepy. You know, just like, um, and I'm, I'm sure I'll do more of it in the future. I'm not sort of completely bagging it out because I know, it, you know, it's a great way to get your stuff out there. But um, <clears throat> the whole time I was, you know, there was I'd, all this I'd like, like us, okay, by gonna... the way, just like on that, I'd love us to readjust yeah. our expectations of like, you know, what you can and can't use it for, like that it doesn't have to be all of one thing. Like I very much no. am in the world now of, yes, it's a great way to put stuff out. So like if I want to, you know, put a clip from something on my Facebook page or on Twitter or whatever, then yeah. I feel like that's a reasonably positive use of social media. But if I'm also there, Absolutely. you know, weighing in into every debate that doesn't really need my input, you know, I'm not going to solve anything. Oh, I'm not going to make anything better. I'm not like, you know, no snarky joke from me is going to solve this like worldwide issue, yeah. you know, that everyone else is yeah. having a crack at. I'm just, I've stepped away from that aspect of it. I, I just was like, I've just got to reassess my personal attitude to social, which is, yeah, yeah, I'll use it to put some stuff out if there's stuff to put out or tell people about stuff if there's stuff to tell people about. But I'm not going to put me out there. I don't want I don't want me like like you said about followers. I'm happy for people to follow my work, you know, listen to the yeah. podcast, be a fan of it, like those sort of things. Thank you. Very yeah. grateful for that, you know. But yeah, that feels like enough of a contract. You don't need to hear my random yeah. opinions on everything as well. You can no. if you want to hear what I think, listen to the show. <laughs> So, so what, so what you're actually saying is that this is actually, and I totally agree with you. What you're actually saying is, is that um, trying to find the middle point of where the personal and the public cross over. Mm. And some people really like those things to be intertwined. Like I know some guys who love getting that stuff out there and it's actually a big part of their modus yeah. operandi. They dig it, you know, and others like me who were just like, oh, and, but when I do do it, like um, we had a bunch of meetings with all these different social media people are saying, look, you really, there's a lot going on with you guys. You, you know, So I just did a bunch of stuff and then sent it off. And it was actually pretty easy. You know, I think maybe if you don't, maybe if you don't have to look at right. it, it's okay. You know, it's like, and I've always been like that when I've been on TV. I remember someone saying, another TV guy 
don't you watch back the show? And I'm like, no, never. I, I just did it. Like, but they're like, but how are you going to improve? And I said, well, what if I don't like it? Mm. Like, I just wait. If you get a few messages that they really liked what you did, that's fine. So, but also that is one of the great misnomers as well. That like, I mean, I occasionally touch in with stuff that I do to see if I'm have developed any bad habits or whatever. But I'm old enough. Okay, I'm old enough to understand what bad habits actually are. I had a recent experience on a show that I was doing where we'd had a, a person who was new to television come on the first time and do really great. And then the second time they came on, they didn't do as well. They still did fine, but they hadn't, didn't do as yeah. well. And I spoke to them afterwards and just sort of asked them about, you know, had there been anything different in their preparation? And it turns out they'd watched themselves on the show the first time and taken the wrong uh. lessons from it. Like, you know, oh, they're just not experienced enough to know what the right things to be. They were like, oh, I felt like I was laughing too much here, so I stopped laughing. And what by concentrating on stopping laughing, they weren't giving as much of their personality in the show as they had the pre... Like, you know, it was just... Oh. So even that idea that somehow you've got to watch something back to improve your performance is such a misnomer because sometimes you don't yeah. know what you're looking for. You're not no. experienced enough to know what you're looking for. Well, you're not the... You're you're actually not the best no. judge of your own performance in that way. That's a very interesting thing. And then they they kind of really start chasing their tail by then because then they have to go back and unlearn what they have learned, and that's difficult to do. It's almost better not to give a fuck and just be loose and free and fun. I mean, like I've done I've done specs and specs so many times, and I've never watched it back. Um, but I've stayed in contact with the guys like, you know, Miff's a mate of mine and I, Hilsey, and it's always nice to, if, you, if you're getting a good vibe off yeah. the people who are doing That's the show, review. you know, you're doing yeah. all right. Yeah. And you, you know, exactly. You know, you're doing all if right. If they're not I'm avoiding not eye contact with you after the show, yeah. you've done well. And, and let, let's face it, like I'm this sort of guy who, you know, I'm talking to you now and then I, you know, next week in a normal week, I'd be playing a big show and then I could be on TV or whatever, like. It's important that you don't um, you don't lose yourself too much in the in the medium that you're doing. But that's also you don't have to be exactly the same in each one. Like if, it, if you want to talk some serious stuff, like you can be articulate and really you know philosophize about where you're coming from and be serious. But if you want to fuck shit up and be goofy, you can do that too. But you don't have to change. You know, I'm not about to like cut my hair and put on a suit. I just put on a suit and leave my hair. You know what I mean? It's just like I can do, but it's like you can do whatever. There's an element of you that I think it's really important. Like I just, I just spoke to Richard Wilkins five minutes ago, and as well as and I'm talking to you, it's just mental. But I think I, one thing I've learned is as long as you're kind of you in each one, that you you will always be all right because you're not trying to pretend. And the core, I mean, you know, we're here talking about you know, the 20th, 5th anniversary of I Being the Big Apples and it's a spider bait kind of celebration. The the core of, you know, in relation to what we were talking about, about identity and am I, am I cram from spider bait all the time or is there different versions of cram? The, the, the cram from spider bait is the core nucleus, I guess, of who I am and the drum kit and the singing and the whole euphoric... Um, experience that doing that and being that creates has actually made me the person that I am. And I'm really, I'm so happy about it. It's beautiful because it takes a while to, I guess, I'm not sure if you had the same thing. It takes a while sometimes to come to terms with your own identity, how you are seen, how people see you. And more importantly, most importantly, how you see yourself. 
And I, I'm just so comfortable being who I am these days. It's fucking great. Yeah, it's an interesting moment. One of the th- it was a realization I can't remember when, but it was, you know, yeah. only in the last five years or so when I started yeah. to do a lot more things that were just exactly what I wanted to do. And I realized that that was probably not going to come with a growth in audience and was probably actually going to come with a, yeah, kind of like a slight lessening of my audience. That by doing the things yeah. that were really what I wanted to do, that most of the hardcore audience would remain, but some of the people who were just, you know, casuals, you know, uh, yeah. they yeah. would probably drop off because what I was now doing and, wasn't and- for them anymore. And yeah. And that's that for me was that point, that point where you're like, okay, well, this is what I'm doing now. Like, this is for the people yeah. who like it, and I hope that, that heaps of people will. But I, yeah. I've kind of lost that other idea of, I don't know, does that make sense to you? Well, no, it does. And, it, and I would actually say that, but a few things to say about that. One is, is that you can come back to that anytime you want. You might get a revelation down the track and go, actually, you know what? This is, I really want to do this project. I've been thinking, and it's just, it's it's the you are a classic example of an artist who's very was always seemed to me to be very independent in his own self and just does whatever he wants like i know you like gruen's back on now which is totally sick and it's just you just have a very um you seem to be very at ease with your view of, of where you're at in your work and so it's i wouldn't be surprised you doing anything but i'd always know whatever you did it was what you wanted and that as a fan and as a mate, that's how you come across. You you can't you come across very um, centered in what you feel like doing. Like you're not being pulled and pushed in, in another direction. And I think that's a big part of people who why people dig you, mate. Uh, why the drums? I'm always interested in why people choose oh, their particular instrument. The drums are just raw power. Um, they're so easy to learn. Like anyone can play basic drums. It's hard to play amazing drums, but and I what I really love about them is that they're so it's just a raw power thing. Just um they're very exciting to create. I mean, one of the things that's great about music that sort of tops a lot of the other art forms is just how immediate and simple it is. Like you can just and and also collaborative, like drums are great, but when you play with someone else playing guitar and then you put a bass in there. I mean, Janet didn't even know how to play bass when she first started playing with us. You can actually create amazing stuff. And um, I'm just, I'm very much in love with the instrument. Like I love playing guitar and stuff and other things, but like someone asked me about Dave Grohl this week and singing drummers and how he decided to be the lead guitarist and lead singer. And I was saying, well, he, he did that because he wanted to be up the front. That's he didn't do it because he didn't want to play the drums. He, in his own mind, and this, the type of personality that he is, he probably thought, "Well, it's Foo Fighters, it's my band, so I should be up the front." But no one would have. Um, I mean, I personally think it would have been actually heaps cooler if he'd stayed on the drums and sung from the kit and had a had a band around him. It would have been because his drumming is amazing. But who is it for me to tell him what to do? Of course, but. I think a lot of times with drummers who decide to sing, they get off the drums. And for me and the, the Phil Collins of yeah. the world, you, it's 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 not just singing and it's not just drumming. It's singing and drumming, and it's a it's a totally uh, different thing than the one or the other. Like it's 
it's really great. So to answer your question, I love the drums, but I, I also love singing on the drums too. It's, 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 it creates a real physical and emotional sense of euphoria that's just awesome, especially in heavy music. There's an incredible uh, YouTube clip that I watch more, like so much that somebody who was monitoring how much I watch this YouTube clip would uh, oh, be really? a little bit worried about it. And it's Phil Collins. It's a, a Phil Collins live show. And he's on this set, this incredibly just – a huge futuristic set and he's wearing some sort of like you know smock you know like that that feels called <laughs> smock that he wore some silk smock and he's got his yeah. you know madonna style you know like kfc like check out like a uh, headset on and he basically so he's doing it in the air tonight and i and so he just walks around this giant set like i mean just walks he's just singing and walking but the wow. set's doing the work you know what i mean he's just like walking up and down the set and that's kind of the majesty of it is just this like man in a smock walking around singing in the air tonight and then he I gets and then he gets up to the top and the either the drum kit I think it either raises from the floor or they drop it from the roof. I can't remember which it is, but it, it certainly moves. It was not there and it appears. And then he just does like literally times it so he can do the drum bit in the, in the air tonight. And for whatever reason, if I'm having a down day, all I just watch is that. It's my favourite piece of like oh. music show business of all time. I just watch from Phil walking around the set to the drums and then I'm like, all right, I can get on with the rest of my day. That is amazing. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it fell on him or it broke or something. No, it's it just all went off perfectly. To me, it's, <laughs> no, it all went off exactly as they imagined. And like you see 15,000 people in a stadium like who like just go, well, that's – that's all show business needs to be. Yeah. That's it. That for us, I we're, mean, we're very happy. It's a, it's got to be the most famous drum fill of all time, mm -hmm. and um, it's also a, a a technique in songwriting. So, um, like Ruby Fields is a really good friend of mine. She's just moved up here, and she's got the number one record in Australia at the moment, which is fantastic. Because I just love her. And Dinosaurs reminds me of In the Air Tonight. Um, because it, and it's it's a not very well used um, arrangement technique, but in the air tonight was probably the first song that ever did it, where the whole song goes so long, and it doesn't kick in until right at the end. But the kick in is so good, but it's not very long, and it's just a really clever, like you know, I'm sure when that song was being produced, when both of those songs were going, oh, we should kick in a bit earlier. And it's like, no, no, wait, wait, wait. And In the Air Tonight is a classic example of that. Like the whole time you're just there giddy with excitement waiting for it, aren't you? I can just see you. And when he comes in, it's so good. And I just oh, I love how funny looking and weird he is. Like so I'm a big Genesis looking. fan. The Genesis, because he was a drummer in Genesis when Peter Gabriel was still the singer. And Genesis is great. I love prog. Like it's so fantastic. Um, and he didn't want to be the singer. Like – the two other guys said, no, you need to sing because we can't sing and we're not getting a singer. He's like, oh, all right. And he becomes one of the most famous singers of all time. It's just so – I love I love how reluctant a rock star he became. And um, oh, I'm going to – I'm definitely watching that as soon as I get off. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so much fun. You'll thank me for it. It's just yep. It's just an old man in pyjamas being a rock star. Like, I love just it. Just the most Long. unlikely rock star of all time. And it's just great. Oh, that is – it really is. He's – because he, he's finally retired, hasn't he? Mm. And, um, yeah, he, he gave it a good shape. But, well, maybe is, there, maybe. is there a song that you wish 
Like, I mean, we're in a different universe now. You haven't stolen yeah. this song. You've, yeah, this is your song. Is there a song that you just wish you had written yourself? Oh, <clears throat> it goes from different things. It used to be Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys because I went through a massive Beach Boys phase, which I love, Brian Wilson. And then I got right into Bob Dylan and basically all the acoustic stuff. I think that there's a bunch of Bob Dylan songs which are incomparable. A lot of them are on, obviously, his early records. And um, just how, just the power of lyric, I think, is one of those things that in the early days I didn't really care about so much. But now I've got great respect for and the great wordsmiths like him. But also for him, and this is something that I like. I'm doing, um, I'm doing the Adelaide Festival next year, and I'm debuting this solo show, which is called Alone with You, which I've put together. Um, and it's I've just wanted to do something by myself for a long time, where it's just me on stage, and you know, some of that will be acoustic. And if you can get it right with the vocal and the song and the the, the playing. Uh, acoustic is as powerful as playing to 60,000 people with, with he- playing heavy rock. Like it's just the opposite. The intimacy and the power of that is so incredible. And I got right into Bob Dylan at a very much l- quite a late age just listening to Tom Wilson just presses record and there's one mic on his guitar and one mic on his vocal and he does creates magic. But it doesn't even sound very good. It's like I'm thinking, why is this so great, you know? And it's just because he's all in the zone. So it, it's almost like another version of singing and drumming or whatever, but just much more intimate. Um, but one song, oh my God, probably Jailbreak by ACDC. Probably- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not bad. You know? But I, I can't, you know, it's like saying, what's your favourite food? It's like, yeah. you know, when I was young and I played footy, it was always pizza. But now it's, you know. Now I'm much more an enriched character and I can't choose between. I know, but it is your football pocket profile questions. You know, it's your what's your yeah. favourite movie and, you know, what makes you laugh. It's doing ACDC. Yeah. It still kind of is. <laughs> um, I know. So I, I just want to go back to the moment where you chose between music and football because – I was talking to a mate of mine the other day who was like, you know, 38 or something and he's finally given up playing footy. And I said to him, I was telling him the story of when I was 20 and I went down to the country um, to watch my brother play in the country where he was still playing and they needed someone to fill in in the seconds. And so I played and then a guy fell on my leg and I broke my leg and I had to cancel a gig. I just started doing stand-up comedy and I decided... Oh, my God. I was like, okay, that's fine. I'm done. Like, I'm done playing sport now. This other thing is what I want to do with my life. I can't do both. Like, it's weekend. They're both weekend work. I can't be going out and, like, trying to play footy with my mates and not knowing whether I can go to a show that night, right? I've got to choose. But that's... I was already doing it at that point. Like, you were not doing it. Well, I mean, you were doing it, but you weren't... In the backyard. Right, in the backyard. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't that further advanced along, to be fair. Yeah. But, but like, slightly so. What was it about that moment that you just, like, did you know? Because that's an interesting thing. For a kid from a country town to sort of just go, I know this is something. Like, is that what you thought? Or was it not that big a thing? I did. Yeah. This is, it's a weird thing to admit because like I, I wrote this thing the other day um, for Ivy and it's basically saying just sometimes you know that something's worth pursuing. And But in Australia, we're very much like as we're taught not to blow our own trumpet. 
we're not we're taught not to say we're great or we're amazing or that we don't want to be seen as a wanker and that's fair enough but sometimes um sometimes you just got to back yourself and i just i had a feeling about this that i i was good at this you know the thing is i was a really good footballer as well so i you know i wasn't getting asked to play the first for nothing but could i be an afl player i reckon i could have had a crack but my career would have been over at 30 mm-hmm. Um, but if you're a musician, you go for the rest of your life. And I think that was a huge factor. And also for the footy culture was sort of wearing me down. It's very male, very back then it was, you know, the sexism, racism, like all this sort of shit, not amongst my mates or whatever, no disrespect meant, but just a very confined thing in art and music was this exploring amazing thing. But, um, and then when I got, first in the state in music in the HSC, which was a big surprise. And this kid from this tiny town gets this huge award. It just, it all galvanised into yes. So then I went off to uni. <coughs> but then I, I had all this other shit. I ended up like dropping out and then going back to the country to work on the hay for a summer with another guy um, Simon Watts, if Simon's listening or watching, hey, Si, how you doing, brother? <laughs> Who was also like school captain like me, also like one of those kids that, because I was one of those kids that was like, I'm school captain, I'm house captain, I'm captain of the footy team, I'm this sort of, boy, you know, he's going to be a superstar, whatever. Um, and then bombed out and then he was exactly the same. He bombed out too. It was a, I think he was smoking too much weed in Canberra at ANU. I don't know. <laughs> and we both had this incredible summer where we just worked our asses off with, with dear old bloody um, Tim Hickey and his brother on their farm and in this snake-infested place working on these hay bales. It was the hardest work I've ever done in my life and made heaps of money. But it gave me great perspective on if, if you're not quite sure what to do with this, do something with these. Like get out there and just, just make money and go for it. And that summer was real, and everything sort of changed after that. We got signed and stuff happened. So, and in a way, I can really relate to people who are supposed to have this incremental rise that never drops. Sometimes you've got to drop to find where you can just plateau and be and be happy. Um, like I'm, I wanted to ask you about your footy thing. Like, were you a really good player, or you just played it for fun, or like, like was that part of it? You did you think you wanted to be a comedian because you were better at it than footy, or because you loved it more? Oh, I, th- I think by the time I was that age. <laughs> My body had made the choice. So oh, right. I was, was, was lucky. I was a gun under 15 footballer, but the reason I was yeah. a gun under 15 footballer in retrospect is that I was the same height as I am now when I was like oh, 14 years old. Oh, you were one of those old. big blokes. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, so right. basically dominated like underage, but like was playing like under 19s when I was 14 because like I had sort of a under 19s like body, like did wow. quite well. I think... Like as a fourteen-year-old, might have come like second or third in the league, best and fairest. Like you know, Holy like shit. was was like a real played schoolboys, like you know, all sorts of you know did, but then like literally just never grew. So all the other kids suddenly just got like taller, and of course they were much yeah. more coordinated than I was, and yeah, you know, those wow. sort of things. So no, there was a brief moment. You'll enjoy this story. I'll tell you this quickly and we've got to get to the end, but you'll like this. So I was in Canberra when I was at uni. So I'm 18 at this stage. So still, yeah, a pretty decent footballer at that stage. It hadn't all completely fallen apart by then. And so I go up to Canberra, I go and play at one of the Canberra teams and uh, they say, well, we've got a trial game for the under 19s, but the best player in the under 19s will 
play in the seniors later on this afternoon. And it was 500 bucks to play in the seniors in, in Canberra. Oh, so wow. in my head, I'm like, I'm from Victoria. I've played like rep level footy. I'm going to dominate this like Canberra league, right? You know? Yeah. So I go and play in the under, under 19s. There's me and another guy who both play really well. And it's between me and this other guy. But I'm pretty sure I've had a better game than him. And I'm pretty cocky about, you know, I'm from Victoria and here I go. Yeah, in my head, I'm going like, this is going to be my part-time job when I'm at uni. I'm going to play footy on the weekends, 500 bucks yeah. cash. That Yeah, go to uni. That's like my whole plan. Anyway, right. this other kid got picked. And I remember telling people, there is no way he is a better footballer than I am. Anyway, yep. that other person was none other than Brownlow medalist James Hurd. Oh, so- no way. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Fucking hell. Have you ever had, had Hurdy on to talk about this? We've never spoken there. about it in the same room together. I believe both of us have told the story, but... Uh, yeah, incredible. The night he won the brown, though, like I got about 20 calls from mates going, yeah, no way he's a better footballer than you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you poor sod. That uh, could have been your big, that could have been your big break. You could have been, he could be the, I could be talking to him now right. on the podcast and you could have, you know. Oh, that's, so. Um, geez, that's trippy. We, we need to finish up. Uh, oh. But uh, I do, um have a few more questions that I like. You can to go ask. longer if you want. Is that right? You can go as long as you like. Man. Okay, it's all good. All right. Well, if you need extra stuff or whatever, you can edit it down or no, whatever. So I'll get. Oh well, it's just I have some standard questions, so that's good. So these are questions I ask everybody. Um, what do you think happens when we die? Uh, <clears throat> as much as I would love to believe that we transcend to another dimension, I, I, I actually think we just turn to dust. And um, we're like dogs, but I do believe in the in the life force uh, um, power of love. But I think, like I was thinking about this the other day. This is this is deep. If the planet, so the two, you know, the planet dies, so does love, because uh, love is the embodiment of humanity. And so, you know, Mars isn't going anywhere. Neither is Venus. You know, Jupiter. These gas giants are happy being the way they are. So that maybe is the is the true power in the universe. Having said that. The universe being infinitely large and time being infinitely long in both directions, like anything is possible. So who knows? I mean, that is the the correct answer, I suppose. Who knows? You know, anything yeah. is possible. But yeah. I am interested in something that you touched on there, which is, so if, because I would say, again, Sarah, 80% of people who come on this show probably have a similar answer to you in regard to what they think happens when we die. So then the question becomes, what is life about? And so you touched on the idea of love. Is that oh, yeah. what you think life is about? Absolutely. Love is the most important element in, in the universe, in, in humanity. <clears throat> it's a pretty all-encompassing word because it can mean like, you know, love of doing what you do, love of someone else, love of your children, love of yourself, love of the of being alive. But it's also very much a compassionate space where you're trying to inject, um, you know, some sort of good vibes from you to other people and take them into yourself when you feel negative. I think it's sort of, it's a, it's a very powerful energy that should and I hope does protect us from the, the limitations that life gives us. It is also a choice. I mean, but I think for me, that's the, it's the core element of, of your existence. If you had to sum it up in one word, 
that's what it would be. So we live in a time where, I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but it feels like people are more divided than ever, you know, that the level of our, you know, opinions has got to that point that, you know, that just people have hard and fast opinions and hard and fast rules. Are you a person who has love for those who disagree with you and, you know, think different things to you? Well, yeah, I think you've got to try to be compassionate to everyone. You know, like that's that's what Buddha said. It's what Jesus said. I'm not religious, but I believe in philosophies of trying <clears throat> to be compassionate to all. Um, the difficulty, I mean, when you hear about people who, <clears throat> you know, parents who forgive people that have, have murdered their kids and really heavy, heavy stuff like that, you just go, wow, am I capable of doing that? I don't know. I don't know, I think you can be in someone else's shoes and talk for them. I think each individual human being throughout history has all had their own, obviously, views and thoughts on things. Um, I, it's, it's weird. Like I, I'm more worried about things like the socioeconomic disparity that's happening in the world. And look, if you look at Australia, like one of these songs I'm writing is, is very much about the whole property crazy property thing that now property is such a big commodity and how it's really splitting people into have and have nots and there's a lot of people out there who can't or won't ever be able to afford a home and how that changes their standing in the community and how that makes the people subconsciously who own their own homes look at them and this is america that's what america is um and i love america there's so many friends in the u.s and it's an incredible country but if you start splitting your culture into these two halves, something bad happens and, it, and you start getting real desperate people on one side and kind of dismissive a little bit sort of le- less compassionate people on the other. And it's a real dilemma I feel. I don't like the way, you know, I know people who do this. They, they sort of look down on renters. It's like this, this incredible, this great term that's in Australian culture that I don't think exists in any other country and it's called I'm just renting. So when someone in a social environment sort of talks about and someone goes, oh, so where do you live? You know, oh, no, we've, we live up the road, but we're just renting. It's almost like their way of almost in one way putting themselves down, but they're not doing it, they're not doing it <clears throat> necessarily for that reason. It's more that the culture has created this image that if you don't own your own home, then somehow you aren't quite up to speed and you're, you know, Will you get there or not? I, I just don't remember that existing when I was a kid. Well, it just didn't there's two th- matter. Two completely different things now. One was that owning your own, the great Australian dream of owning your home was an achievable thing. As you said, for our yes. parents' generation, if you had a reasonable job and worked, you know, for your life, houses were priced at a point where you could, like a lot of people, could have, it was a reasonable dream for somebody to afford a house. But wages haven't grown at the same rate as housing prices have grown. So the idea that we still suggest that that is, like the way that we talk about it is still the way we talked about it. It's the greatest range dream and everyone should do it. And yet the prices of the homes, the properties are so mm. disproportionately different to what anyone could naturally earn doing a reasonable job working hard. I know. And then if you're in like, say, my situation where you do, have it it just it just keeps increasing in value so much that you just you can see how some people get carried away with that and that they lose perspective of what it's like to 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 have it or to not have it it's to me i don't know how 
to fix it. I'm not offering solutions. I just don't like my main thing is I, d- I don't like the way it's made people feel bad about themselves if they don't have that. And it's, it's, and that, and I don't like the way that some other people kind of like, I think subconsciously a lot of the time in, in social settings kind of just sum up someone in terms of their, where they stand in the pecking order about not just do they own or don't they own, but how much they own. Because the other thing that I'm, thinking about and this is this the the extreme wealth and now everyone wants to be a billionaire and now and you know there's all this space where um the aspiration is to be as rich and wealthy as possible and i can remember that sort of i thought that's what we were sort of fighting against you know i just thought that's what we didn't want to happen i'm a pretty you know i'm a bit of a lefty in this way and proudly so but i just don't know why it's suddenly this such a big deal all over again and that there's so many people suffering it just seems wrong to me you know yeah i mean i could not agree with you more so um what's one of the now i i prefer the worst piece but i'm happy for you to answer the best piece so i'm going to ask you about a piece of advice have you ever got a really terrible piece of advice or a really good piece of advice answer either i just always prefer the terrible one oh geez um i can't remember <laughs> any advice i've ever given okay well that's okay i mean that's on brand you did say you're a guy who wouldn't follow anyone's advice anyway so maybe no no i'm i'm sure look i i know um like little things where certain people have said you should put that out as a single and you're like, nah, and you put this other one out and it fails miserably and you kind of think, I wonder what would happen, but it, you don't know if it would have worked either. I mean, we've had we've had the situations like that in both cases. I mean, you know, this this whole celebration of Ivy this week, I guess, is as much a celebration of Buy Me a Pony as everything else and Buy Me a Pony being the first Australian song to win the Hottest 100 and the, its topic, basically this weird satirical song about... Um, being really worried about, you know, what record companies are going to do to you and they're going to destroy your life and all this stuff and, and how people related to that. Um, I was the one who really said that this should be a single, like uh, I was, and everybody liked the song, but I don't know whether, the, I mean, I think it was into it. I can't remember, but I just remember really believing like that question you asked me before about, did you really feel it? This is one of those moments where I was like, no, this is, this is something about this song that'll do well. I didn't know it was going to win the bloody Hottest 100, but um, had exactly the same thing with Black Betty. It was an identical thing of like, no, nah, we've got to put this out now. This is important. And like, ah, oh, it's a cover. We'll put it on the record somewhere. No, no, you've got to trust me. This is going to work. And I, this is the most arrogant thing I'll probably ever tell you, Will, and I'm, I'm happy to do that because I, I love you and I know you're a compassionate man. But um, a, a guy asked me at uni once, do you think you're going to make it? And he was just like, and I said, yes, I actually do. I really believe that. And it was just what a wanky thing to say. What the fuck? I had no idea. But since I've been talking to you today, I do feel that there's moments in my life where I felt like, no, I've, like I'm listening to my inner voice and, and he's right. He's not always right. But all we can do is try to listen to him and hope that he's right more than he isn't. And I guess I've been lucky in that way. But, you know, made some horrendous fuck-ups. But you just take them on the chin and, off, and you keep on going, don't you? Yeah. Okay. So how do you deal with um, mistakes? Are you a person who's easy to admit when you've got something wrong? Okay. This is a really good one. Um, The way to cope with mistakes, and I would advise people to try this technique. 
So the classic one is everyone's got someone in their life who they know in their social circle who kind of annoys them and always says something and they never have a comeback. And you're just like, oh, I wish I, I could have said that. Oh, fuck. <laughs> and then you go home to your girlfriend and go, oh, I wish I would have said that. And then you didn't say anything and he walks off. And, um, and that feeling that you have of just, oh, that's the feeling of failure. But it disapp- the next day you feel a bit better and then the day after that it's completely gone. I mean, if, if you kind of just let it go, you just got to let it go. And it's exactly the same if you make a mistake. You, there's no point in dwelling on it. If you can learn something from it, like the, like the story you said about the, the person who was on TV and tried to learn from their, their performance but then learned from not learning from their performance, that's good. If you can learn not to do it again or if you whatever or maybe it wasn't your fault or whatever, analyze it and then just put it to one side and then move ahead. I'm not saying forget it. But the more of that information and data you can collect in your pocket, the better you are for the next time it comes up. And um, as long as the overall body of work that you're doing, the overall stuff that you're doing is is heading in the right direction, I reckon you'll be all right. You're going to cop some along the way, but just try and just try and not let them completely knock you off your perch. You know? Uh, two more questions and we're done, mate. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Um, so on my desk, I have a piece of metal. It's as close as I get to an inspirational, you know, slogan or whatever it is. Like it's it's been sitting on my desk for 20 years. It just says on it, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? Now, the way that I interpret that, just for me, is when I'm thinking about a project, like not to fall into the trap of, like thinking what would make this successful, but rather thinking of it, if this was successful, what would you want it to look like? Who would you want to be working with? What you would you want it to be achieving? Like, you know, so kind of starting with the idea that it's, that's what it means to me, but it does not need to mean that to you is what I'm about to say. So what would you, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? Oh shit. That's a great idea. I'd probably make a film, I think. Um, and I'd try to put in, all the good ideas I've ever had and try to, cause I've, I've often, is a, a mate of mine in LA who's often asked me if I, you've ever thought of writing scripts and stuff. And cause I've always got lots of good ideas um, for things, but the, and I have such respect for filmmakers and for him. Uh, it takes so much fucking work. Like it's epic. The amount of development and ideas and you've got the synopsis, then you've got to move into scripts. Then you've got to think like, there's all these things you have to go. But the great thing about film as an art form is it encompasses all the art forms in one space. And so if you can imagine, like I love it when I read about directors who write a, a part for a person. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to, if you know, I'm, I'm writing this part for Will, I think oh, you'll, you'll be perfect. I actually wrote it for you. Would you be interested? And I think the actor sort of goes, well, yeah, I'll at least have a listen and have a check of the script and see if I like it. Um, I love the idea and how editing can can create new magic. Like one of my all-time great favourite films is um, Apocalypse Now and that whole story, there's that fantastic documentary that he that his wife, Sophia Coppola, made about that filming. And just the insanity of it and essentially what it was was just let's film as much as possible and then we'll fix it in the editing room. And that, sh- that film shows that that is not only possible to make a good film, it's to make a masterpiece through if you've got enough material, if you know how to edit, and music's very much like this. Like um, 
I've been listening to Miles Davis a lot lately and there's an incredible album I really would encourage you and everyone to listen to called In a, in a Silent Way. It was made in 1968. And it's the first record of its type where the band just jammed and then the producer and Miles just cut sections up and then just stuck them together. So the same pieces of music, same vignettes keep repeating themselves and it almost creates this incredible pastiche. Um, but it requires time. It requires belief and, you know, obviously cash and all this stuff. So it's one of those situations where I, I don't know if I'll ever get the time or the the energy. It's just much easier just writing, a, a you know, today I wrote this really killer song and it's so good because it's done and then you can go and do the dishes, talk to you and then fuck off to the beach. It's great. <laughs> you know, music's awesome. But scripts and stuff is just like, so if I knew it was going to be a smash, and it couldn't fail, I think I'd probably do that because, you know, I'd go, right, I know I've got the genie in the bottle. Will Anderson has told me that this will, be a, this will work because I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful art form and I do, I do love it so much. Um, but, yeah, the, the time and the intention uh, does require uh, something at the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good answer. I like it. Um, so last last question. I have a time machine. I can take you to any period in history or any point in the future. It is a round trip. Um, you can observe. Oh. You can affect something. You can. You don't have to do something for the sake of humanity. That's the only yeah. proviso I like to put on it. This is purely for you, whatever you want to do, visit a period of time in the world, but you could also go forward if you're mm. curious about the future. Like where would you go? Would you go to the so, future or okay. the past? This is a stoner question. I've asked this many times mm. and have been asked it. Okay, <laughs> we, need, we need to put a few parameters here. Okay. Firstly. Great. Love it. Are you on earth? Uh, you are on earth, yes, for the basis of this, on earth. Okay, so you're not, you don't have a spaceship. You can't go anywhere else. Okay. Uh, do you have protections? So are you protected from something that might happen like Tyrannosaurus Rex or like, you know, Napoleon chopping your head off or some shit? Like, no, no, I think you've got a... No protections. You're a human. You're a human, you're a human being. Human. You're not okay. like supernatural, no. And this the most important one is can you travel from country to country? So essentially am I stuck in Australia or can I go any... Can I transfer... No, no, no. Any, anywhere in the world. Okay, so what Absolutely you would do fine. is... You'd probably fly to the place you wanted to check, and then you'd be mm. there in case it was a prehistoric. Oh, it's got to be. The, it's got to be to see the dinosaurs, man, doesn't it? Yeah, right. Is that like, how could you? you would go I mean, back can you far? can you believe if you could actually see that? But you might end up somewhere that's just a desert and not, not see anything. Like I was going to say, that's a lot of risk for me. The dinosaurs. Okay, like so, I, I've watched I've watched Jurassic Park on a big screen. I, I get the gist. Yeah. Okay. Like, okay. I won't say that. I won't say dinosaurs. <laughs> Um. Oh, gee. There's so many ones. You know, Christ crucifixion's a bit macabre. That'd be like, or be the mm. guy. Go, no. You know, go to go back in time with a with a machine gun and just shoot all the Romans, bring him down, and go. Come on, mate. We'll be all right. <laughs> Take him home with you. You know, fix it. Fix it all. He's like, no. I'm supposed to die. Leave me alone. Like, yeah. Um, and also, I don't approve of you machine no, gunning. <laughs> no, tranquilizer darts. Of course, they wake up <laughs> tranquilizer and with a bit of LSD darts. So they wake up questioning yeah. their whole existence. Okay. You know, that would probably be bad for them. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's just there's so many points in history that is so macabre that I'm fascinated by. But um, mm. like something like D Day, oh my God, like just wow, epic. 
Um, but then why would you actually want to do that? I don't know. I think I'm digging a hole for myself here, Will. Um, I think our best is to stick to the dinosaurs and hope for the okay. best. Dinosaurs. We're locking dinosaurs. I'm happy yeah. with that. Hey, uh, thank you so much for doing this today, man. I really super appreciate it. My pleasure, mate.